Amen, and what great words for us as we continue in our study of the book of Proverbs. Be thou my vision. Happy Father's Day. Let me send my happy Father's Day to the fathers here and those fathers that you're celebrating. I don't know if my dad's watching. Hi, Bob. You're the best. Um, My father-in-law, Jim. Even my grandpa, Bob, uh, 94 years old, uh, can figure out the technology every once in a while. So I just want to honor the dads in my life and uh, how important they are to me. Would you, would you stand uh, for our scripture reading this morning? We're continuing in Proverbs chapter 1. Hear these words from the Lord today. Wisdom cries out in the streets. In the squares, she raises her voice. At the busiest corner, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O oh simple ones, Will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Give heed to my reproof, and I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I've called you, and you've refused. I've stretched out my hand, and no one heeded. And because you've ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when panic strikes you. When panic strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and be sated with their own devices." For waywardness kills the simple, and, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But those who listen to me will be secure and will live at ease without dread of disaster. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated and let me pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So last week, uh, Pastor Joy began this summer series in the book of Proverbs. She introduced us to the great theme of Proverbs, which is wisdom. Wisdom, that is the theme of Proverbs. Let me give you a definition of wisdom. Maybe it's a word that uh, you can't define right, uh, right off the top of your head. I know I couldn't. I had to work on this a little bit. This definition comes from Tim Mackey of the Bible Project. He says, wisdom is being good at life. Isn't that great? Wisdom is being good at life. And the reality there is that we all choose a, a mindset, a rubric, a, a way of making decisions, a lifestyle that, that is supposed to allow us to be good at life. Some of us are more intentional in that than others. And this indeed shows up in the theme verse in the book of Proverbs, which is Proverbs 1-7, where the author Solomon says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So in other words, it is awe and reverence of God and who he is that allows us to be good at life. If we shun wisdom and instruction, if, then, then by definition, in the book of Proverbs, we're foolish. So there's a binary here. Either we're, we're wise or we are foolish as we navigate life. 
my guess is that you can think about people in your own life and, and you would label them freely as either wise people or foolish people. You can probably think of wise people and foolish people in your life. And my guess is as you, as you look at those examples in your life, you would probably agree with me that it is a better, more mature, more fruitful life to choose the way of wisdom. Joy made a compelling conclusion last week in introducing us to this idea of wisdom, that wisdom is three things. It's, it's relational. It teaches us how to be in the world and, and be with the people around us. That wisdom is, uh, that it requires humility of us. The, the very fact that we are seeking wisdom means that we don't have it and that we realize we can't generate it on our own. We need to get it from somewhere. That's a humbling thing. And that it's available to us if we ask for it. If we want wisdom, we ask God and he promises to give us wisdom. So we'll find that as we go throughout the summer, that Proverbs is, is really a compendium of wisdom from God. That if we'll listen, it's going to positively impact many things in our lives like our relationships. It's going to humble us. And we're going to be granted that wisdom because we're seeking to fear the Lord, meaning revere him, respect what he has to say. So let me ask, from the youngest to the oldest in here, would the people around you label you as a wise or a foolish person? Would they say that you are good at life or not so good at life? Are you wise or foolish in various areas of your life? Your finances, your friendships, your decisions, your parenting, your dealing with your parents, your marriage, your boyfriend or girlfriend, your work, your sexual life, your words. Are you pursuing wisdom in these areas or are you being, as the Proverbs calls it, foolish? So as we learn what wisdom is, we need to ask, what is my relationship to God's wisdom? How do I relate to that currently in my life? And the text last week and, and throughout the first third of the book of Proverbs, wisdom is referred to as a path, a path or a way, one that we can choose to walk upon. Uh, path, this idea comes from the Hebrew word derek, which, which occurs over 25 times just in the first nine chapters of Proverbs. So when it occurs that much, we go, that's a theme, right? And as we referenced last week, that lovely passage from Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your what? Paths. Your paths. The way of God's wisdom is is a path that we are able to take as we seek him. He will direct the path of wisdom for us. Path is a a rich metaphor, I think, for us because we we take them all the time. They are implying a a, a point of origin. Here's where you are, a destination. Here's where you're going to go. And then all the many turning points that get us there. So in Proverbs, there is a wise path and a foolish path, and we need to choose which one we're going to take in our lives. And that's what I want to focus on today, Uh, this analogy of wisdom as a path that we walk upon, that we're called to walk on. So to do so, I want to walk you through how we came up with the visual for this sermon series. You may wonder how we come up with some of the visuals for for our sermon series. Um, This is what we ended up with, and I'm going to do, in a few minutes, I'll do a little art history on the piece that's actually on this slide. Um, But it didn't start there. We go through lots of different rough drafts to to get where we we land, usually. Uh, When Pastor Joy began working on this series and kind of pulling together an outline for how this was going to work, uh, we started with this idea of a map. Um, like the Chicagoland area, a, a, a map, right? And maps are awesome. And, and uh, we thought about maybe maps as, as a way of, of communicating this roadmap to, to life or roadmap to wisdom. 
Um, maps are great, but the more that we studied Proverbs, the more we realized that this, this kind of chartable map where we can go, here are the directions from here to here, and here are the routes that you take them, and it's very prescriptive. Um, it seemed a little less apt than the imagery of a path, which is so prominent in the book of Proverbs. So Joy came up with something like this, um, which is a fork in the road, right? This is evocative of Robert Frost's poem, Two Roads Diverged in a Yellow Wood, and I took the one less traveled, and it made all the difference. But the more we study Proverbs, we realize that from the very first chapter of Proverbs, this visual of a fork in a road really wasn't going to work for a couple of reasons. First, there really aren't two equal paths in the book of Proverbs. Uh, There's the path of wisdom, and if you're not on the path of wisdom, you're on the path of foolishness, which really isn't a path. It's like a wilderness way to destruction. And second, we wanted to make sure that we were not communicating to all of you or to ourselves that the way of wisdom was some broad well-paved road, uh, a stroll in the woods with lots of flowers, sort of like a moving walkway through, through life. Because wisdom is actually far more interesting and far more dangerous than that. And that much is clear from Proverbs chapter 1. If you were listening well to what I read, that's a tough passage. The first nine chapters of Proverbs are a preamble that teaches us what wisdom is, how we get it, how we understand it, why it's so important. And the rest of Proverbs, from Proverbs 10 through Proverbs 31, it's just a collection of sayings, maxims, um, for those specific areas of our lives to say, what does it mean to be wise in these areas? So whereas last week in Proverbs 1, 1 through 19, we overheard a father speaking to a child, to a son, kind of like arm on the shoulder saying, hey, let me impart some wisdom to you. Here in verse 20, the mode of communication changed. I don't know if you picked up on that as it was being read for you. In this passage, wisdom is actually personified as a person, as a woman, lady wisdom, as she's often called. She's not a typical woman of this time in an era where women weren't given the same voice as men. Here, her words burn with urgency, the urgency of a street preacher. There's really no other way to look at lady wisdom in this passage than a street preacher. I don't know about you. um, I generally have unfavorable views of street preachers when I see them. They make me kind of itchy. Um, sometimes the, West, the messages are really, really wacky. Uh, even if the message is good, sometimes the delivery is really wacky. Um, but I don't know if you're like me, but there's something when I see a street preacher in Chicago or even here, sometimes we see, have them down at the train line here. Um, there's something in me that admires their boldness. It makes me wish I had more of it. So here, Lady Wisdom is a street preacher, and she speaks in a really forward way. Um, And she says a a number of things, but three things that I want to impart to you about wisdom from Lady Wisdom, the street preacher today. First is this. um, Wisdom is demanding. Wisdom is demanding. Uh, We might think of wisdom as as sort of a convenient thing for us, but wisdom is not a a bunch of handy tips to improve our lives, uh, like some sort of software update on our computer. It's not a a magic shake with a secret ingredient that's going to boost our performance. It's not additive to the Christian life. Wisdom, if we take Lady Wisdom's words, it's really a matter of life and death because wisdom reveals that we are listening to God with an eager heart. So it's with this demanding urgency that Lady Wisdom speaks. It says, Wisdom cries out in the streets, in the square, she raises her voice. At the busiest corner, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates, she speaks. Why does Lady Wisdom choose the the street, the public square, the the highest point above the gates, the busiest corners? Because that is where the people are. That's where the people are. That's where they live. That's where they work. 
That's where they shop for things. It's where they meet their friends. It's where they relate to other people. Wisdom is not some sort of private thing to edify your own life in seclusion. You need wisdom in the places where you live your life and you exist day to day. And God wants to speak into those areas and impart wisdom in super helpful and super specific ways. Wisdom is not just something that's available when we need it. Wisdom actually demands to be heard and be taken seriously. She does not wait for the people to come to her, right? She goes to where the people are, and she demands to have an audience with them. She demands to be heard. That's how important God's wisdom is for us, and it demands to be heard over the noise of our lives. Interestingly, she goes to the noisiest places, doesn't she? Second, wisdom is dangerous, I say that wisdom is dangerous because the consequences of of how we relate to God's wisdom are pretty dire. Look at verse 22. Her first words, the street preacher's first words. How long, O simple ones, are you going to love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Give heed to my reproof, and I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make my words known to you. The scholar Bruce Waltke um, makes the case that Lady Wisdom is, is speaking to adults who are uh, beyond the age of accountability. It's not children that we're speaking to anymore. It's adults who have gone past the age of accountability, and they have not yet committed to follow the path of wisdom. They are uncommitted. And she implores them to turn in harsh words, to seek wisdom. And if they do, she's going to pour out knowledge and make God's wisdom, God's word known to them. If they don't do that, well, there's not a lot of grace, is there? Maybe it was as uncomfortable for you to hear this as it was for me to speak it earlier. Um, It's hard for us to to read these words of wisdom laughing at the downfall of foolish people and scoffers. Um, I think it's hard for us because those don't sound like the words of a gracious and loving God that maybe we're used to hearing. doesn't seem like the kind of words that that Jesus would say or that, that God would say to his people. It's not very gracious or loving or caring to hear that. But, but remember that wisdom is personified here. It's wisdom that's speaking. And what is wisdom's chief goal in life? It's to triumph over folly. It's to triumph over foolishness. It's for foolishness to not succeed. So it's well within wisdom's rights for her to, to laugh at the downfall of foolishness. I say wisdom is dangerous, but I, I mean it in two different ways. It is dangerous if we ignore it. We're going to face a final judgment. We can't avoid that, actually, in this passage. Wisdom points to that final judgment and says, turn. Turn. The the word turn in Hebrew is actually the word that we use for repentance, to repent. To repent of our foolishness and to turn to wisdom. So if you're one of those people who who are uncommitted here today, you haven't committed to seeking God's wisdom in your life, I just want you to know you're living dangerously. Wisdom calls out to you, and I join her and say, be committed. Don't waffle anymore. Don't believe the, the, the lie that your decisions here on earth don't really matter and you can get wise at some later point in life and everything's going to be okay. No, our, our choices have eternal consequences. They set us on a path that refutes the fool's careless treatment of this life if we're going to choose wisdom. So wisdom is dangerous and it's deadly serious. But it's also dangerous in another way. It's dangerous if we choose wisdom. Because if we choose God's wisdom... 
If we seek to be good at life in the way that God prescribes for us, it's going to mean that we have to radically trust God with all of our hearts and not lean on our own understanding, which is a thoroughly humbling process. It's going to place restrictions upon us. It might mean that you have to make some big changes in your life. You may have to quit a job or stop drinking in excess, or renounce bad habits, or, or seek sexual purity, or, or fundamentally change the relationship that you have with money and possessions. When we choose God's wisdom, it's dangerous, because it demands a radical trust and obedience. Third, and this is the last word that wisdom has for us, wisdom is our security. The end of the passage, verses 32 and 33 For waywardness kills the simple, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But those who listen to me will be secure and will live at ease and without the dread of disaster. The complacency of the foolish is their downfall. But if we listen to the wisdom that comes from God, if if we commit ourselves to a life of living wise, if we allow God to, to keep us on that path and to guide us along that path of wisdom, What's the promise here? It's security and ease. Don't get those words wrong. Security means physical cover. He will guard you. He will keep you. And ease is is emotional or psychological safety. We can live our lives knowing that the good life is found when we seek God's wisdom and that security, deep security, heart security comes in him. So in this passage and throughout the book of Proverbs, we're going to have a contrast in two different ways of living. There's the foolish way of living and the wise way of living. What is foolishness defined by? Just in this passage, uncommitted, selfish, simple-minded, disobedient, and, and tormented, anguished inside. But what is the path of wisdom by contrast? It's committed. It's repentant. It's humble. It's obedient. It's secure. I know it's overly simplistic, but which side of the ledger here describes you better? (laughs) I mean, if you go, I'm really more defined by the left side, let me encourage you, this is a good day to turn, to name the ways in your life in which you've been foolish. And may I invite you to respond to the demanding, dangerous, and security-providing wisdom of God today. What a great choice to make. May I welcome you to the path of wisdom. And this is partly why we moved away from the imagery of a fork in the road, uh, the, the, the two paths in the woods imagery, because it's not enough for us to just have this major fork in the road to choose that way and just to walk on it. Choosing wisdom is actually a daily choice that we make in lots of different areas of our lives. And which is why we ultimately ended up with the artwork that we did uh, for this series, because we wanted to communicate something else that I think wisdom says uh, implicitly in this passage and throughout Proverbs, and that's this. Wisdom is dynamic. Wisdom is dynamic. It's not static. It's dynamic. And that's what our chosen artwork is all about. Uh, as many of you know, I love art. I love talking about it. Um, but I really do want you to know that I, I, I talk about art here because I really honestly believe that good art in all its form is an extension of God's wisdom and, and revelation and insight for us. And it gives us audio and visual for our lives that, that, that enrich our lives and, and teach us about God. So 
I will invite you to hang with me as I, as I walk through this artwork with you. I promise there is a payoff in the end. Uh, so let's dim the lights. Any good sort of art history lesson, you got to dim the lights a little bit. So uh, the piece that we ended up with that we focused on is called Broadway Boogie Woogie. Uh, this is by, um, this is completed in 1943 by the Dutch painter Piet Mondrian. Um, to understand this painting and why it's an awesome painting and it's a beautiful uh, piece of art and why it matters to us as we're going through Proverbs, um, you have to understand Mondrian's arc as an artist. So Mondrian was born in Belgium. Uh, his father was a schoolmaster, was a, was, a, was a good artist. He actually taught drawing classes at the school. Uh, but Mondrian, uh, Piet Mondrian, uh, outpaced his father very quickly. He was raised to do traditional Dutch paintings, which are like small landscape paintings, beautiful landscape paintings. And by the time he was a young teenager, he was actually teaching uh, the people at the school. He was an instructor, certified instructor in those sort of Dutch landscape paintings. Um, those are highly representative paintings of things like windmills and, and haystacks and, and, uh, and fields, that kind of thing. But we can see even in Mondrian's like, earliest works that uh, we, we can see his personality sort of poking through. He loved order and, and balance and representation, but you can also see things like movement and dynamism and, and the littlest hints of abstraction coming through as well. So uh, you can see that in this painting, beautiful painting. Uh, this is called Farm Near Doivendrecht. Uh, and you can see that it's representative. When I say representative, I mean you can tell that that's a farmhouse and that there's water and that there's trees and that there's land, right? It's representative of, of, of real things that we can see with our eyes. But he's also, so he's playing by the rules of painting by being representative, but he's also bending those rules a little bit too. Um, you can see particularly in the trees and in the reflection in the water, he's playing with lines, right? He's playing with color fields. He's playing with form. Uh, the painting pulses, in a way. It's dynamic. He became obsessed with trees and painted them to increased abstraction early in his career. Uh, he moved to Paris and he came into contact with artists like George Brock and uh, Pablo Picasso and became enamored with cubism, which is sort of a, a deconstruction of representative form. And um, he began to, to continue to work on trees to sort of bring that to life. He founded a, a school of art called the Distil, which means uh, the style or the form in Dutch. And it became a very influential sort of early abstraction uh, school of art. And uh, while he was in Belgium, uh, the First World War broke out. He was at home in Belgium, and he couldn't leave uh, his home country for four years. He couldn't go back to Paris. And he began to get more and more abstract in these years. He returned to, to Paris in uh, 1918 and began to work on some of his most iconic pieces, highly influenced by the war that was happening. So the representative art, the trees and the barns and those kinds of things that he had before gave way to the Mondrian paintings that you've likely seen if you've been in a major art museum in the Western world. They're all over the place. Um, this one has a very scintillating name. It's called Composition in Red, Yellow, Blue, and Black. Um, and you can see that that's what he's doing. He's playing with lines and he's playing with color fields. Uh, in the noise of life, with the realities of, of war that were so present around, that's where a lot of abstraction came from because Mondrian's like, I got to simplify. Life's too complicated. I have to simplify here. So primary colors, geometric lines, big, broad canvases. Uh, you can see paintings like this all over the place. You can see them in Chicago. There's two of them in the Art Institute of Chicago. They're situated like that on the wall. Um, these are the kinds of paintings that bring out my least favorite comment as a lover of art, which goes something like this. My 10-year-old nephew could paint that. Um, 
my response would be, and the right response is always, well, your 10-year-old didn't paint it first, uh, so that's the first thing. But actually, in the case of these pieces of art, no, your 10-year-old nephew could not paint these. These are very, very nuanced pieces uh, of art. The color fields actually hold a ton of depth in them. They're not just flat colors, um, especially when you stand in front of them for a long time. So, And the lines are situated in such a way that the longer that you stand, they seem to extend beyond the canvas all the way to the ceiling and the floor and the outside walls. They are really striking pieces, and um, if you're not an art person, you're like, I don't believe it. I just challenge you at some point, go down to the Art Institute, stand for 20 minutes in front of these pieces, and see if you feel something. I would love to talk to you about it. I think you will. But Mondrian became disenfranchised even with this most abstract work that he's done later in his career. Uh, at the onset of World War II, Mondrian moved to New York City to uh, get a fresh start in his career. That's where abstract art was really happening at the time. And in New York, I think he began to put it all together. Uh, Montreal would spend his evenings at jazz bars. He loved jazz music. He loved the, the, dynam the dynamic nature of the city. And he allowed the reality of the city that he was in to melt away these dark lines and these primary colors and, and those kind of de defined rigid color fields for something different. And that's where we get Montreal's magnum opus, Broadway Boogie Woogie, 1943. It's his last completed work before he died in 1944. This is a map of New York City. Um, he's come all the way back to representation, right? Very different representation than the farmhouse, but he's representing something that's real. And it's the perfect distillation in many ways of what Mondrian has focused on for his whole career. Order and balance and representation, but also, what do we have? We have movement. We have abstraction, and we have pulsing dynamism. Uh, it's a map of New York, but not uh, in a traditional sense. Yes, there's lines there, but it's not a map where you can say, I'm walking on this street, and I'm going to go from, from here to here. Instead, gone are those black lines in favor of little small blocks of primary colors and gray um, that, that really do an amazing thing when you stand in front of them with your eyes. So it actually looks like the blinking lights that you might see on a street corner. And every inch of this canvas is super purposeful. Um, it seems to breathe as it hangs on the wall. Um, you can go to the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the MoMA, and you can go and, and, and see this. And, and if you stand in front of it, you see yourself in this map. You feel the music that's happening. You get immersed in the energy. I want to show you just a brief video of, of um, jazz composer Jason Moran, uh, who reflects on this painting, Broadway, Boogie Woogie, and especially listen to what he says at the end. The painting Broadway Boogie Woogie by Pete Mondrian. Where does the boogie woogie come from? The boogie woogie is traditionally a blues. That's just it. I think the coolest thing about a boogie woogie is what the left hand does. That's the boogie part. Um, the woogie part is the right hand and how it solos. What seems to be the left hand is all of the smaller squares that are, you know, just continuing to wipe across the painting from left to right. The right hand is the larger pieces. It's a conversation the left hand and the right hand. It's a conversation between how do you perforate the white space? <laughs> That's a C, the two blues are C, and then those two up there. I mean, this, this is a score.
I feel like paintings like this and music that it documents also is a trail for me to realize how there's a way out. All the good artists have shown us ways out, you know, or ways forward, I'll say. Ways forward. What's another word for a way? A path. Um, as I look at my own life and my own journey of faith, this piece of art is kind of what the good life looks like for me. It's what it means for me to trust in the Lord with all my heart and not lean on my own understanding. It is not a well-paved path in a, in a pastoral wooded forest. It is a dynamic and pulsing journey that is a daily journey, and it keeps me on my toes all day long. All the small squares for me are that left hand, the always sort of marching forward daily life of seeking wisdom, doing the right things, rejecting foolishness, rejecting complacency, repenting every single day for the sins and the waywardness in my life, which is a daily occurrence for me. Those small dots are like the hours and the days of the journey, seeking to be faithful, seeking to be wise. It's an ever-moving melody line. Trying to be a good God-fearing husband and dad and pastor and friend and son and brother and uncle and boss and neighbor. This is the plodding forward march of life. This is every day. And then those larger blocks for me are the right hand. And those are the tangible visitations that I get from God because of my willingness to try and walk on that wilderness path as, as tenuous and faulty as that often is for me. God shows up. He gives me the words I need in a tough moment. He blesses me with a sustaining power when I'm overwhelmed. He stops me in my tracks with something lovely or beautiful. He gives me self-control in a moment of temptation. He uses someone, often you, to speak truth to me. He forgives and restores when I need it. He, he gives me a, a vision out of the blue for my work or for my family or for my marriage. He brings tears to my eyes in worship. He reminds me that my future is secure in him. That is no stroll through the woods. It is demanding, and it's dangerous, and it's dynamic, and it's where my security lies. That is the good life. That's the good life. What does your faith look like? If it was a piece of art, what would it look like? Does it look like this? Is it dynamic like this? If not, maybe it's time to turn today and say, God, I, I want to enter into this dangerous dynamic walk with you in a new way. Would you put me on your path of wisdom? And here's the best news, friends. Just as Lady Wisdom doesn't wait for an audience, but goes out into the street corner with a bullhorn to where the people are, so too God comes to us in the form of Jesus Christ. And in his ever-present Holy Spirit, he comes to us and he offers to journey with us on this path of wisdom where he teaches us to boogie-woogie, to walk in that normal, mundane, faithful way every day, marching forward and to experience his deep and abiding revelation and presence in our lives. Friends, it is a dynamic journey for one reason and one reason only, and that is we serve a God who's dynamic and wants to be in relationship with us. We're going to be learning wisdom all summer long from Proverbs. Some of those are going to get super specific to different areas of our lives. But let's begin where Proverbs begins, with a call to commit ourselves to the path of wisdom that God lays out before us. So hear it again from Lady Wisdom. 
How long are you going to love being simple? How long are you going to despise knowledge? Instead, let's hear this reproof and let's choose the God-fearing path and have the wisdom of God poured out upon us and his very word made known to us. Let's find our ultimate security in him. Would you pray with me? Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we viewed our journey upon this life, especially with you as one that is static. That's somehow one choice and not the dynamic life that you call us to. The dynamic daily existence of experiencing your presence, of being faithful, of repenting when we fall short of seeking your wisdom in every area of our lives and experiencing your revelation and your presence in holy ways. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways in which we've been simple, the ways in which we've been foolish. Would you illuminate to us the ways, uh, the areas of our lives in which we have not sought your wisdom, we have not placed those under your authority, we have not sought to be obedient to you, and would you teach us what it means to be wise, would you teach us what it means to live well? And Lord, we know that that life only comes from you. Lord, may that journey with you be beautiful music to your ears. May we understand the dynamism of what it means to trust in you with all of our hearts and to not lean on our own understandings, and to acknowledge you in every area of our lives. And to invite you over and over again to direct our paths. Would you grant us wisdom, Lord, we pray. Amen.